Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. Uh, they are big folks, over $600 billion in assets under management. Phil, I'm an equity investor. I'm looking at 2022. I see rates are going to be rising. Uh, I see the economy is going to be slowing. Is there any place for me to be in the equity markets? Uh, yeah. Um, it, it's certainly going to be a more volatile year, certainly going to be a choppier year. Uh, but we think when the dust settles at the end of the year, stock market will be maybe 10% or so higher than 4,800 where we started the year. We think we'll end the year at about 5,300. But that's going to be a very back-end loaded kind of performance. The first nine months of the year, in our mind, uh, is going to be very choppy, very volatile, with the focus on the soaring inflation, what's the Federal Reserve doing in terms of changing policy. And so, you know, we thought there would be an 8 to 12% correction or so over the first couple of quarters of the year. Um, the emphasis here is going to be preserving capital. And, and that suggests owning the stocks that are cheaper, that have lower betas, that have higher dividend yield support. Um, so we like domestic large cap and small cap value. We like small cap uh, stocks. We like international stocks. And, and those stocks have been performing a lot better than the growthier technology stocks, which, which have been trading at, at, you know, sort of nosebleed valuation levels. So hang on, you want to in preserving capital, you want to buy a small cap stocks? How's that defensive? The, the small cap stocks have gotten taken out behind the woodshed, so the valuation is significantly more attractive than the large cap growth names. The the, the small cap stocks quite literally are forty percent cheaper than the large cap stocks, and they've got better growth. Um, most people think that it's the small cap stocks that are trading at you know fifty or a hundred times forward earnings. That's not the case. So the, the value stocks, the small cap stocks, the international stocks are the places you're going to find better value. And then what do you look for a specific sign to get back into the broader market if we're going to rally to 5,300 at the end of the year? Or is there a certain time that you want to do that? Well, certainly, I, I think there's going to be chop into the late summer, early fall period. Uh, we want to see how this inflation uh, plays out. We want to see what the Fed's change in policy is going to be. We know the tapering is going to end in March. They told us that. We know they're going to start to raise interest rates in March. They told us that. What we don't know is, are they going to uh, tighten policy, raise interest rates every meeting, every other meeting? Are they going to uh, give us a bunch of 25 basis point hikes? Are they going to front load with a couple of 50s? Uh, are they going to start to aggressively shrink the balance sheet either passively or uh, uh, actively in the middle of the year. There's a lot of open questions. And importantly, we, we don't know who five of the seven members of the Board of Governors uh, is going to be until the Senate confirms them or not uh, later this month. So there's a lot of open questions surrounding inflation and Federal Reserve makeup and policy. 
Phil, it's it's interesting here. We we've had you know this, this pullback in the marketplace. We've had uh, a little bit of a bounce back here over the past week here. Um, one of the sectors that has been really interesting. I'm looking at WTI crude oil at uh, ninety one dollars a barrel. Yes, it's had such a move. Have the the stocks had their day, or is there still room to grow? I know a lot of folks thinking about that. Well, there's no question that energy has been the best performer to date, and and deservedly so. Uh, crude oil has gone from 30 or $35 a barrel back in November of 2020. As you said, we're, we're now at $90 a barrel going higher. We're probably going to be at, at 100 110 120 by the end of the year. Why is that? You've got this global reopening trade uh, in which there is a, a significant uh, demand for energy, yet the largest energy producer in the world, the United States, we voluntarily reduced our production by 15% over the course of the last year um, because of fiscal policy. So as a result, what's the clearing mechanism? Price. Price has gone higher, uh, less, less supply, more demand, and, and that trend is going to continue until either the demand slows or we're able to put more, more product onto the market. And the latter is, uh, looks seemingly difficult, right? I mean, OPEC um, doesn't have that much spare capacity. Well, two issues. Number one, they're saying, well, we're just going to slowly add 400,000 barrels you know, a day uh, over the next month to, to increase that. But there are legitimate questions as to whether or not they've got any oil that they can put onto the market. They, they, have, they, they, may be, uh, they may be running on empty right now. So the swing producer is going to be the United States. And, and, you know, over the course of the last year, We've taken our production down from 13 million barrels a day to 11 million barrels a day. So in order to get the price lower, U.S. producers need to be encouraged by the federal government to, to start exploring and producing more oil. By the way, Phil, if we're at uh, 5,300 on the S&P and crude is trading for 110, 120, where do you see the 10-year at the end of the year? Uh, we think benchmark 10s, which are about 190 now, uh, we think they'll be closer to 2.5% by the end of the calendar mm. year. Interesting. See, Phil always brings the goods. You know, always got some yeah. headlines coming out of Phil Orlando. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate uh, your clear calls on these markets. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management. He's at Federated Hermes. Those Federated folks are based in Pittsburgh, but uh, Phil's in New York City. All right, let's talk interest rates. They're going higher. A lot of folks want to say uh, or want to get an understanding of you know, how quickly and how much. Priya Misra, she does this for a living, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. Priya, is my Federal Reserve going to lift interest rates 50 basis points in March? Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, we don't think, not in March. I mean, it's not obvious to us that the benefits of going 50, which is not priced in, it would be a huge shock to the market, it would tighten financial conditions, that it's worth it from the Fed standpoint. I mean, I think they're signaling that they're about to start hiking. We think largely consecutive meetings of hikes, until, uh, as, as well as quantitative tightening, until we figure out whether inflation is decelerating in the second half of the year, which we do expect. So we're looking for them to start in March, continue to hike at consecutive meetings, and then slow down into year end because we see inflation declining. But I would stress that quantitative tightening is likely to move interest rates higher. I mean, we don't think they go 50, but if they start letting the balance sheet run off, 
The balance sheet is much larger than it was in 2017. It has a shorter weighted average maturity, and that's going to put a lot of treasury supply in the market, which we think will take that 10-year higher. So we're looking for two and a quarter on the 10-year. The pace is tricky. When does the market start to price that in? You could get a faster move to that two and a quarter. But I do think the long end, the front end's priced for hikes. I think the long end still has some uh, some work to do in terms of moving higher in rates to price in this exit from uh, off the Fed. Priya, it's been 25 years since I took statistics from Hassan Rahmani at Antioch College. And to be honest, Where's I Antioch wasn't college? in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Great place. And it was super fun, which is why I didn't pay much attention in statistics. <laughs> but um, so the language I don't I don't have down pat, but you know, there can be a couple different scenarios when you're making forecasts, right? On the one hand, you can have a high degree of probability. Your base case is very likely to happen when you're looking at, say, um, you know, year-end Fed um, uh, policy and inflation. On the other hand, you can have a really broad distribution of probabilities, right? I mean, as you said, right. we don't know what's going to happen with inflation. Maybe it turns around in the middle of the year, and then the Fed doesn't have to hike five, six, seven times. Or maybe inflation keeps coming on strong, and they have to do not just one, but multiple 50 basis point rate hikes. Is this a situation where the um, the, the likelihood, what, where forecasting the end game is much more difficult? Yes, it is. And I would say for a couple of reasons. We're still in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I mean, as much as we'd like to think that it's behind us, the impact of it on supply chains, on the goods to services, that, that demand transition that we've been waiting now for a year. I mean, there's some aspect of that that flows into not just the labor market, but also inflation. Because as much as inflation was a supply chain issue, it was also a demand issue. There was significant demand for goods. So we're still trying to figure out the impact of well, the how COVID itself um, you know, how, how the pandemic progresses, how does the impact of that flow through? So there's that macro risk. And then uh, to your point, I mean, trying to figure out the timing of when inflation will decline. And at the same time, you have a Fed that I think has stepped back from forward guidance. They're telling us they're likely to start the exit soon. But after that, all options are on the table because of the, I think, inherent uncertainty around the data and I think concerns that they might be behind the curve, which is why I think that 50 basis point will give a very strong signal that the Fed thinks they're behind the curve. But I think they want to keep all options on the table because they may have to go faster. And that's the case where can they go faster on QT or can they go more hikes? Markets pricing in about five and a half hikes this year. There are seven meetings. They could technically go seven times, mm. just 25, and it's much more than it's well, pricing. Also, the, the hikes probably aren't going to have an, as much of an effect on markets as QT, are they? I mean, if they if they so. unwind yes. two or three trillion dollars from their balance sheet, they still haven't gone through everything they built up since the beginning of the pandemic, and that would hit markets. I think, you know, that's way more than anyone right. expects. Exactly. And uh, we've noticed real rates as well as the equity market or financial conditions in general seem to react much more to QT because there's a permanence to it. While on hike, if all we're doing is moving a hike from 2023 into 22, you know, it's a big deal if you're trading Fed fund futures, but it doesn't matter as much in terms of interest rates because you've just taken front loaded the hikes as opposed to increase the number of hikes. And notice the end point of the hiking cycle, the market pricing of that hasn't changed. It's been between 175 and 19. So it's not like the market's adding more hikes. We're just moving hikes 
from one year to another. But QT is a different story. At that point, there's a lot more treasuries, and we need to find that marginal buyer for treasuries in auctions that every other week the treasury has auctioned. So, yes, I think QT is a bigger deal. One of the reasons why we think the Fed will not have to hike as much is because of QT. All right, Priya, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate it. Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. Let's continue our discussion of the U.S. labor market. We can do that now with Nolan Church, CEO and co-founder of Continuum. Nolan, a former chief people officer, Carta, former head of talent at DoorDash, a former recruiter at Google. So he knows all about this hiring and retaining talent stuff. And captain of and captain the D1 baseball of team. The baseball team at the University With of the name Orleans, like Nolan, is, do you have to? I think you have to be a yeah. baseball player. You can't go out there yeah. and, you know, be a Frisbee you know, ultimate frisbee player. You got to be a baseball frisbee player. Frisbee golf. Exactly. Nolan, thanks so much for joining us here. One of the many questions I have about this unique place in time in our in our labor market is, you know, the the 4 to 5 million people that aren't in the labor market today that were there pre-pandemic, who are they? Where did they go? And are they ever coming back? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, guys. I think that's the big mystery we're all trying to solve. Now, what I would tell you is, is that I can't tell you for certain for all four to five million, you know, where they are ended up right now. But I will tell you that I think a large majority of those people have actually become solopreneurs. I think that mm. they've started to work for themselves. I think that they're starting to consult, advise, become angel investors. And I'm seeing that especially be the case with executives that have deep expertise in a functional area. So uh, how do we do that? <laughs> well, you got to work in radio a lot longer. Yeah. Um, no, I, I honestly believe what it comes down to is, is that if you look at the labor market right now, and specifically the case with executives, which is where I've spent a bunch of my time, these people are the most in demand. So if you think about executive recruiting, which is the function in which we connect executives to companies today, these searches usually cost 100K or more. They usually take six to nine months. And right now, there's a phenomenon I've never seen before, which is these executive recruiters are so busy, they are turning away business. Mm. And so if you think about that on one side and you think about the other side is these people have been in their careers for 10, 15, 20 plus years, and they're tired. They've been working their tails off for typically one company at a time. And, you know, they look in TechCrunch every morning and they're starting to see all their CEOs become angel investors to do other things outside of just the CEO job. And they're wondering, hey, I've, I've had my head down this entire time. Is there something else that I can do that's interesting for me, that gives me more time back in my life, but still allows me to make an income and to challenge myself intellectually? So Nolan, as you talk to your clients, as they think about trying to hire, and we know it's such a difficult hiring environment right now, we see for you know, help wanted signs everywhere. And it's not just at the local bakery and local store. It's at right. corporate America as well. Are, is, is hybrid workforce, is that just table stakes? Do I just have to offer that as an employer? I, I actually don't think so. Now, what I will say is everything is a trade-off right now. And so if you don't want to be remote first or hybrid, then you will take longer to hire somebody period, full stop, especially people that have experience. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? Especially depending on where you are. What, what kind of, I mean, your clients are higher end, uh, looking to fill higher end jobs, right? So 
I mean, if you're an executive and you're doing well, I don't think your boss probably cares most of the time what office you're in. That's that's what we're seeing now. And look, COVID forced us all to become Zoom native, um, to to just like oh, everyone's got a webcam set up now. And so I think all of us are now used to this. What's happening, though, is that just because these searches take so long, and it's the case for executives, certainly, but frankly, all the way through the stack in a company, I think companies are, are saying, actually, this trade-off that we wanted to have everybody in the office just isn't worth it anymore. And now we need to optimize for speed. And if you're optimizing for speed, what we're seeing companies do is, is obviously, they're going remote first, number one. We're seeing them pay more, um, so increasing compensation as number two. And then number three is that they're starting to explore these new options. So instead of, hey, I thought I needed somebody for, you know, I wanted somebody for a full-time role working 40-plus hours a week, I will now take somebody that's working 20 to 30 hours a week because I can get them in the building faster. By the way, how many people are you putting into, you know, um, highly skilled, high-level jobs normally where they need to be in New York City or in uh, Chicago or in L.A., and they say, no, I'm, I'm going to do the job from, like, the mountains in Montana? <laughs> that is, I would say, 99% of the executives in our marketplace yes. are now like that. <laughs> it is unbelievable. And, and what's fascinating is, is that, you know, companies, they're, they're starting to catch up, but still many of them are quite slow for this. And so we primarily work with, with pre-IPO startups uh, in the technology sector. And I would say the large majority of those companies are now being founded as remote-first companies. Those that aren't are living on this line between, man, I really want to be intentional about my culture. I want people in the office. We have this office. I want people to use it. But it's taking forever to hire and so, okay, maybe I'll now explore somebody fractionally that doesn't work in the office because they can come solve my problems today. Look, I, this is where the, the world is moving in this direction. And I think the people that jump on this train now will deal with a lot less pain than those that right. continue to be headstrong about getting people in the office. Paul, get on the train. I need to get on the train. You're going to miss the train. We need to get Alan Anthony I'm from Jersey from on house. the train. That's what we need. <laughs> All right, Nolan Church, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Fascinating discussion here this half hour about the changing labor environment. Boy, you got to get people back in the office, or do you? All right, Nolan Church, CEO and co-founder of Continuum. Fascinating discussion. All right, let's talk manufacturing here. Ann Fandazi, Chief Executive Officer, Ritchie Brothers. Ritchie Brothers is a publicly traded company. About six and a half billion market cap stocks been kind of flat over the last year. The company sells used and unused industrial equipment, including equipment used in the construction, transportation, mining, forestry, petroleum, and agricultural industries. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but it makes perfect sense. And uh, we love chatting with Ann. She gives us a good sense of what's going on in industrial America, supply chain, all that stuff. So, Ann, thanks so much for joining us. How about let's just talk about how's your market? is? How's the market for used and and I guess new industrial equipment. Yeah, so thanks for having me on the show. Uh, the market is white hot because the demand is so high. The issue is the supply chain and uh, we're a global company uh, and we're feeling it all over the globe. So Ritchie Brothers uh, transacts primarily used equipment and as you said in the industrial uh, transportation space, 
unfortunately, uh, if you don't have a new piece of equipment to replace your used piece of equipment, you cannot give up the used piece of equipment. So we see the demand is sky high, resulting in just incredible prices for used equipment in the marketplace because they cannot get you to replace at the same clip they would so, otherwise uh, want to. So I'm guessing, it, you, you, is it an auction platform that you have? It's a, yeah, so we uh, we primarily go to market through an auction platform. We also have a listing service that we've had in Europe for some time and just launched Richie List uh, uh, a couple of months ago uh, in North America. So we allow people to list their own equipment, sell it themselves, we can finance it, we can inspect it for them, we can help close the transaction, or if you just need liquidity, we are happy to sell it on your behalf. So, um, I mean, it sounds awesome That's a to cool, me. It's a cool business. Like, <laughs> I want to go on the website and check it out. But I imagine that your turnover hasn't been so much higher over the past couple of years, but the prices have just soared. Is that the case, or do you even have more turnover? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Our units are down. So two things are happening uh, in our marketplace. Uh, the prices are sky high because demand is sky high. The units are down because, as you say, we, you know, low turnover, we can't, we can't get the new equipment. And also the mix of the equipment. So the things that are coming are older, smaller. Again, you know, when people really have to turn the equipment, they do. Otherwise, they just hold on to it much longer. Now, the beauty of our business is, as that equipment continues to sit there, it continues to age. So sooner or later, when the supply chain catches up, uh, that equipment will need to be turned, uh, and that's where we come in. So, so we're, uh, we're but the but excited. the but the opportunity for you here. I mean, I'm looking at your stock here, going from basically 40 to 60 pre-pandemic to now, which is you know 50% gain. It's better than a stick in the eye. But mm -hmm. your opportunity, I guess, is to. Um, really boost your brand awareness here. You know, I think of uh, the, the car space and pre-pandemic, most people wanting a new car would just go down to the dealership lot and pick one out, but there aren't any on the dealership lot. So they've had to familiarize themselves with Auto Trader, CarMax, Car Gurus, etc., and so forth. I guess what you want to do is make everybody aware that Ritchie Brothers Auctions is the place to go for this kind of equipment. Yeah, that's beautifully said. We actually take a lot of cues from the car industry. I personally spent almost uh, over a decade in big auto uh, prior to a couple of uh, uh, CEO gigs outside of auto and now Ritchie Brothers. It's a perfect analogy. So we are uh, very fortunate because the space of used equipment, ready for this, $300 billion of used equipment in a normal year changes hands every year. $300 billion. Wow. We transact roughly $6 billion of that every year. So the opportunity space is huge. Uh, and our transition is just beginning from kind of a pure play auctioneer to really a marketplace. Think about all the things that exist in cars. Kelly Blue Book, Carfax, as you said, all of the different formats to transact. We're actually putting those in place. Uh, we acquired Rouse to help us build uh, the Kelly Blue Book of our industry. Uh, we launched a listing service to facilitate transactions outside of the auction channel, and then obviously kind of the preeminent auction uh, player all over the globe. All right, fascinating stuff. We're going to have to get you back on, and i got a million and one questions. Like, yeah, me too. When is the supply chain thing going to be uh, over? I want to get, how I you get take a big over this whole market, right? You want to become like the Mannheim yeah. of uh, equipment. I want to get a big like earth mover or something like that. And Fandazi, Chief Executive Officer for Ritchie Brothers.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.